At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to FIGP's podcast series, FIGP Focus 45. FIGP is the only international NGO whose membership consists entirely of IP attorneys in private practice. The FIGP global community is driven by a shared interest among like-minded people to promote common solutions and advocacy for private practice. The FIGP business family makes the world a little bit smaller, bringing independent IP attorneys from around the globe together to focus on IP issues of global importance. Our host is Louis-Pierre Gravel, a registered patent agent and partner at Bereskin & Par in Montreal, Canada. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Welcome to FIGP's webinar and podcast series, FIGP Focus 45. My name is Louis-Pierre Gravel, and I'm a partner at Bereskin & Par in Montreal, Canada. Today's conversation is a prelude to a workshop that we will have in London at the Open Forum in October. In preparation for this workshop, our members will have received a link to a survey on profitability, and we strongly encourage you to complete it. This will allow us to provide participants with as accurate and complete information as possible. Our guest today is Norman Clark, one of the founders of Walter Clark LLC. His consulting practice practice specializes in issues of international business and legal practice strategy, mergers, risk management, internal productivity, partnership governance and compensation, and lawyer performance and profitability. He is one of the world's leading authorities on business and marketing strategy for law firms in emerging markets, working with progressive law firms in Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, Central and Eastern Europe, Latin America, and the Middle East. He is a renowned author, and among his publications, he co-authored, along with his Walter Clark colleague, Lisa Walker, Sustainable Profitability in a Disrupted Legal Market, published in 2019. Welcome to our series, Norman. It is a pleasure to have you as our guest. Well, thank you very much, Louis Pierre. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all of you, wherever you may be. It is great to be here today. And I do want to put in an additional plug for the survey. The survey is an amazing piece of research that is going to give all of us some very valuable information and insight into today's topic. Now, in terms of my opening comments, I just have a few. And I think the most important thing that I can say about profitability is that one size does not fit all. And this is particularly true in our experience with intellectual property practices, because they are among the most complex in the entire legal profession with all the specialties and subspecialties and services and products that an IP practice delivers to clients. They are significantly different 
in many respects in terms of the financial performance and profitability of the practice. So our advice to all law firms, but especially IP practices, is to consider your various lines of service almost as if they were separate business units. The factor or factors that might be most influential in the profitability of a patent prosecution practice, for example, could be significantly different in trademarks. And if you treat profitability in the same way for all of your service lines, you could waste a lot of time fixing things that really don't need to be fixed while overlooking the real problems and perhaps even making some things worse. So, Louis-Pierre, let's get into our discussion today. And if you have questions out there, please post them, uh, because the most interesting thing about any discussion about profitability is the various contributions that so many people from different backgrounds can make to enrich the knowledge that all of us take away from this session. So one of the questions, and I think you sort of addressed it in your opening statement is, you know, you go to a conference or you go to an event or a trade show or something like that, and everyone's talking about profit per partner, which really is looking at all your revenues minus your expenses, and then looking at that amount and figuring out how much it represents uh, per partner or per per share or per point. Is that still a good measure of the relative profitability of a firm? And if so, for what purpose? The answer to that question, I think, would be no. Profit per partner, particularly profit per equity partner, has almost hypnotized the legal profession, particularly in North America and the United Kingdom. Uh, you read about it in the press all the time. Uh, it has also hypnotized many of my friends in the law firm consulting industry, to be honest. <laughs> but when you think about it, it's really a relatively meaningless measurement because it has very little diagnostic value. So the profit per equity partner in my firm might be X, it might be Y in your firm. And the answer, the question is, so what? <laughs> what does that tell us about our own firms or even about the relative profitability of our two firms? Now, Having said that, I would say this, that when you get down to a more granular level, when you talk in terms of profitability per share or per equity point, that can have some value because that is perhaps the better measurement of how much I as a partner am going to take home and it's not so much the measurement itself, but one of the themes in our conversation today will be to watch the numbers and watch how they move. It's not the number itself, but it's how it moves up and down over time where you really gain the insight. So bottom line, uh, I think profit per equity partner is an abuse of the concept of division in arithmetic. But <laughs> when you get down to a more granular level, then you can still have perhaps some limited diagnostic value. So if you like to divide things, go ahead, but don't put too much stock in profits per partner. There are better measurements. So we're talking about you know profitability in IP firms. You've just basically shot down the notion that a divide and by a number profit per partner is pretty much 
not very indicative of anything useful uh, in terms of a measurement. But so how do you start by getting a little bit more insight into the financial affairs of the firm? What are what are the main areas of analysis? I think we would go back to some very basic concepts of profitability. And in the sustainable profitability book, and also in our survey, we talk about six classic drivers of law firm profitability. And that's where you start, looking at each one of these six factors. And what are they? Well, there's pricing, there's productivity, how much fee-producing work do you put out? There's the realization rate of all the work you do, how much actually results in a fee being paid of all the work you bill, how much gets paid. And then on the cost side, there's your overall approach to cost management. And beyond that, there's the issue of staff compensation. And then finally, there's the issue of leverage. Who is doing the work? How can we get the most productive people to do the work at the lowest cost, either in the firm or outside the firm? So those are the six basic factors. But when you apply them to a practice group or even to a specialty within a practice group, you sometimes find that in some practice groups, uh, it may be an issue of leverage where you have partners doing work that they really shouldn't be doing. Uh, in another practice group, just down the hallway in the same building, it might be a matter of realization. Uh, the practice isn't collecting the fees and they may not be managing their work in progress uh, very well. So once you move into those six factors, you begin to get a diagnostic guide to what may be the problems that are most significant. So that's where we start with just looking at the six basic factors and seeing how they affect my firm, my practice group, the specialties that I work in. You can get very granular with this, but the important thing is this is the starting point. So we're a firm, we've decided that we're going to embark on a path of seeking healthier financial management for the firm. When you start a project like this, either with your assistants or even internally, what needs to be in place from a partnership perspective or from the professionals or the staff in order to make this exercise a success? And what do you, what kind of buy-in do you require? What kind of commitment do you need from the people that are around the table to keep driving this initiative forward? Well, now that's the tough question because you need several things. The last thing you mentioned, I think, is probably the most important, the commitment. Because for sustainable profitability to work, everybody has to be involved in it, even if it's only to the extent of, for example, faithfully recording your time. Everybody needs to be aware of the basic concept and they need to be aware of what they are doing with respect to the factors, the drivers that are most important to them. So that commitment, the communication that this is really important, this can put money in our pockets. Let me give you one example. One firm that I worked with a number of years ago, it was a small litigation practice. Selling them on the concept of sustainable profitability was somewhat difficult uh, they fail to see the relevance of it. How does this really apply to me? This seems awfully theoretical. 
But then we looked at one of those six drivers, realization rate. And we discovered that the firm was only collecting about 80% of what it billed. And that led to a very interesting discussion. You know, this is money that you have earned. (laughs) It's yours. And it's out there in the street. It hasn't been paid. And you really need to know why. And this discussion not only got a lot of people's attention, because this additional 20%, gee, if it's only even 10%, was a significant amount of pure profit going into the partner's pockets, potentially. So getting into an understanding of, well, why is it? What is it that prevents us from collecting this money? That led, in this particular case, to some serious discussions about quality management and client relations. And so sometimes the solutions might be different. So the first thing is, of course, to get people to the point where they see the relevance of this. The second thing is the numbers themselves, the measurements. Perhaps the biggest obstacle to a deep analysis of some of these profitability and financial performance measurements is the absence of reliable time records. Uh, Because without that, it's very difficult to get a reasonably reliable estimate of the cost of producing a legal service per hour. Uh, So the two things, the commitment and then the basic numbers. Now, the good news is that with respect to the numbers, most law firms today already have the numbers. They may not have done the division or the manipulation of the numbers, but they have the numbers and it's a matter of putting them together. So I I would say those are the two things to really get it started. Flipping through your book, and I admit I haven't read it from page, from from start to beginning completely yet. There's a chapter on cost management, which really piqued my interest. And in that chapter, you cover some of the pitfalls when embarking on a cost management initiative. What are those pitfalls and why can they lead you astray if you think, if you're focusing on cost management as as your, as your main thrust for improving profitability? I think that one of the problems with overemphasizing cost management is that it sometimes causes us to overlook the easier opportunities in terms of productivity. You know, how can we produce more fee-generating work with the resources that we already have? And so sometimes just slashing costs or managing them in a one-size-fits-all way uh, just is not the most effective way. But there are some specific examples based on our experience with some of our clients. The first one that is perhaps most fundamental is not knowing what it costs to produce a legal service. In many cases, unless a law firm or a practice group or even an individual partner looks at this specifically, the estimate of the cost of a legal service and the fee that you want to charge so that service is profitable, usually that's a well-intended guess rather than a measurement. Uh, So in the book, we discuss the concept of fully loaded operating cost. Uh, And this is something we'll be talking about in London as well. Ways to understand what it actually costs in terms of staff costs, equipment, facilities, everything else to produce 
one hour or one unit of a legal service. Uh, you have to know that at the beginning, fully loaded operating cost. Now, like many things in the area of measurement, you can get intensely microscopic. I mean, we're beyond granule. We're talking microscopic now. How much does it cost this paralegal in our practice to produce one unit of service? And at some point, the added value of this information is not justified by the added time it takes to figure it out. But understanding the fully loaded operating cost and the cost to produce a legal service, because changes in fully loaded operating costs are one of the most important diagnostic indicators that you have that either things are going very well or that there are problems. So that, that's one. Uh, the other thing that we have seen is overinvestment in multiple offices. Fortunately, the COVID pandemic taught us a valuable lesson that, you know, perhaps we don't need all these branch offices that we have because increasingly a convenient office location is not that important for many clients. And particularly uh, in IP practices, uh, just speaking from my own firm's uh, IP uh, involvement as a client, uh, you know, we don't have uh, an IP firm in Florida. Uh, the firm that does our trademark work is in California. And I've never been to their office and have no need to. Uh, but multiple offices really build up the operating cost of a firm because you're duplicating facilities, you're duplicating people to some extent. And it, it's no longer as necessary as it once was. So we have to have an office in Tierra del Fuego because there might be some business there. It's, it's still something that is a common mistake, but it's a good way to look at cost management. Uh, the third one is not keeping up with the technology, particularly in an age when the cost of technology is actually decreasing significantly. What we typically see is, for example, one of my partners or I will be working with a law firm and will say, you know, you really need a client management system. Oh, those are so expensive. Oh, they cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. No, they don't. There are online services available that are particularly uh, appropriate and useful for a small practice. And the monthly fee is very nominal per user. Uh, so not keeping up with the technology because the further you fall behind, the more expensive it is to catch up. One issue that we see also in cost management is ignoring partner performance issues. Uh, and that can be in terms of the way the partner manages his or her practice. It can also be in terms of some of the ways that the partner delegates work. It can just be you know poor fee, produ fee production performance, but ignoring a partner performance issue creates a drag on the performance of the firm and ultimately that ends up being a drag on profitability. And the final one that we mention is what I call slash and burn. Slashing costs without managing the risks. One thing we saw in the financial crisis of 2008 to 2010 
was some firms that really should have known better said, our revenues are down 15%. So we're going to slash all of our operating costs 15%. We're going to reduce our staff by 15%. We're going to reduce uh, the number of pencils that you get by 15%. And they were, they were very uh, insistent about this. What happened was they overlooked the risk of recovery. And when the clients started coming back with more work, firms that approach, took this approach actually had difficulty recovering because they weren't prepared. So uh, in the book, we gives a one wonderful example based on a, a, tr- a true situation of cutting costs without managing the risk, cutting staffing costs. And the other area that is sort of related to that is keeping things in-house that no longer are profitable. Uh, And we're seeing, uh, particularly in the past five years, uh, a greater interest in outsourcing some functions to outside providers. You could do it less expensively and usually with better and more consistent quality. Uh, Another book that uh, we have published through Globe Law and Business is one on outsourcing of core legal functions it's, uh, there's one chapter on outsourcing of patent research and analysis as an example. And we also, in that book, provide a suggestion of a, mytholo- of a methodology to decide whether outsourcing is right for your practice. And if it is, how do you decide which specific functions can be outsourced? But once but- again, you just can't slash the costs and outsource stuff without managing the risks. Right, and I, I suppose that if you're if you're embarking on a on an evaluation as to whether or not um, a service or an activity can be outsourced, you need to figure out internally what your internal cost is first and foremost, and then I suppose before making that decision, you should probably take a look also at whether or not that these processes can be optimized to increase the profitability. And failing that, would you suggest then that you start looking at alternatives? I would follow that order that you suggested. I would follow that order because to understand what the best opportunities for some of these other possibilities might be, uh, you really need to, first of all, look at your own processes, uh, processes and fix them. You know, fix it. Don't try to outsource a broken process because you're going to get broken results back. So understand what the cost is, understand what the weaknesses and the processes might be, understand the risks of outsourcing and the risks involved. Uh, Generally speaking, is this a high-risk type of thing that we really need to keep in-house? Or is it something where if there are risks, it might be in the lack of consistent quality, and that might be something we might want to outsource to a firm that does this all the time. So again, this is a great example of trying to slash costs without thinking about the risks involved. Right. One of the particularities that I think IP firms have over other more traditional law firms is that IP firms, and certainly the IP firms that did what we call agency work, uh, we're generally early adopters of flat fee pricing for a number of actions or interventions in files. 
That said, firms still require partners and professionals to enter time against a flat fee entry. Based on your comments earlier that a correct or an accurate representation of the time that you put in is necessary to be able to then extract useful information. Should that practice be banned? Should you should you not have to enter a time entry when you're doing a flat fee? Should you be rather entering a unit cost or a unit as you as you do it? Um, or how do you how do you then try to figure out the profitability of a firm when you've got a mix of flat fee pricing and hourly rates being billed out? Well, it comes back to that common divisor, time. And time and timekeeping have uses that are somewhat directed by the nature of the fee structure. Now, if it's a traditional hourly fee, of course, that's important. But to help you understand the internal cost of work that's done on a flat fee basis or a unit basis, uh, it still comes down to time. So if we're billing on a unit basis, for example, we would track the time that it takes to deliver that unit of work, not because it's going to produce what the fee should be, but it's going to tell us what our cost is. And on top of then we can determine the fee. Now, we recommend to all of our clients, regardless of the practice area, what we call universal timekeeping. You record everything, whether it's billable or non-billable. Recording some of the non-billable work, such as client development, business development, marketing, that goes into a calculation of the return on your investment of that time. Time written off is extremely important, particularly in an hourly fee, of course, but it's also important when you have uh, costs that are uh, unusually high and you want to understand why you look at the time and ask if this time were billed on an hourly rate, would we need to write it off? Because it was rework to fix a mistake that could have been avoided or we didn't understand what the client wanted or whatever it might be. So we still recommend keeping time because that gives us what I like to call the universal divisor to help us understand the cost. Now, what's interesting is that if we look at what's been happening in the whole area of pricing for legal services, we have found that in particularly since 2020, law firms have been very successful in raising their rates. However, the upper limit of that raise tends to be to recover increased costs. You can get away with going to the client and saying, look, our costs have gone up 10%. We really need to raise the, the fee here. Uh, you can get away with that. But beyond that, uh, that's where you begin to get the resistance. So what we have to do, since our, we're limited as to how high we can raise our fees, even in a period where fee raising is perhaps a little more acceptable than it had been before the pandemic, we really need to understand what's happening to the costs. In some respects, uh, flat fee work and uh, unit work, in some respects, can be more profitable than the hourly rate. And again, so, it's cost. 
And and I think your point is very interesting that you're right. You can increase the, the posted hourly rate, but you're not just by that simple action going to increase your profitability because you're just you're just adapting to the to the increase in costs that you're uh, that you're assuming. It's very interesting. So looking at IP firms in particular, and, and I'm you know this conversation could go on for hours, I'm sure. For IP firms, we can roughly segment the clientele into three large buckets. So your domestic clients or your local clients, where there's a lot of value-added contribution from the professionals that comes into play because they're expert in their field and they put their minds to find creative solutions to the client's problems. Then there's the foreign associates, so the firms that represent their own local clients but entrust the work to firms outside of their country or region. A lot of that work is I'll qualify it as somewhat value-added because that depends on the clients. And the level of service, of course, is is varied across geographies or clients or types of firms. Finally, you've alluded to to the outsourcing model. We're seeing now the emergence of third-party service providers that are taking work that used to be done by the firms. It's unit-based, it's uh, it's volume-based, but they do still require a local agent. These are mostly lower-cost providers. They seek efficiencies and processes. So how do you reconcile the very different expectations, service levels, and profitability measures between these three segments when you're trying to analyze the overall profitability of your firm? You know, what you describe is almost as if there are three law firms in terms of the client, the focus on the client base. What you describe is something that is very common across the board in the legal services industry, but particularly intense, we have observed, in intellectual property. And I would suggest that several things are important. Number one, a very intense focus on the needs and expectations of each one of those sectors that you describe, uh, because they do have different expectations. They may also have different levels of price sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And those expectations and needs might be changing. And so anticipating what's happening in each one of the three sectors can be very important because if you just assume that in the domestic clients, this is how their needs are changing and you apply that to everybody, you're going to miss. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just not good. In fact, you might even make things worse. So an intense focus on each sector and treating each sector as a separate client sector. And I think that is the most important thing. And then understanding what their needs and expectations are, particularly in some of the key areas for clients generally. And in the survey work that we have done over the years, uh, we have a standard survey that we administer for our law firm clients and to their clients. And we ask about 20 standard indicators of quality service, you know, low price, responsiveness, things like that. And what is interesting is over the past 20 years, what has happened is five of those indicators have risen to the top. And they include responsiveness, understanding of my business, Hmm. availability, you know, practical advice as examples. And those are what really 
are most likely to change. The concept of responsiveness has certainly changed uh, from even what it was 10 years ago. So keeping up with those and understanding how they're different in those client sectors is perhaps the most important thing you can do because at the end of the day, you want that client, whether it's located down the street or it's located on the other side of the world, you want that client saying, those guys really understand my business. They really understand what I need. That's very interesting, that last comment, because you know sometimes we have a tendency to think of the financial management of the firm or profitability or internal cost as something that is divorced from the actual service that you're providing your client. And what you've identified, I think, is that in fact, everything is intertwined. Everything is linked. And to be able to provide good services to your clients, you need to have some qualities like responsiveness, accuracy of the responses. But you also need to have an underlying infrastructure that allows you to to provide those kinds of services without wasting resources, right? Because that ultimately will affect your your profitability, right? I think that's I think that's true. I think that's definitely true. And that relates us and brings us into the area of the governance and management of the firm or the practice. Because profitability and governance are in fact very tightly linked together. The link may be subtle but it's there. And one of the things that takes so much time away, particularly from partners, are management and administrative responsibilities that perhaps could be better done by somebody else. We're seeing even in relatively small firms, the emergence of the professional manager who takes care of worrying about financial measurements, financial reporting, uh, client relationships to some extent, and having a, a governance and management structure under which the partners or owners of the practice are willing to delegate these important responsibilities uh, to others is, is one of the keys. Another thing that can be done in smaller firms in particular is what we call the cabinet system. Instead of having a managing partner who has to take care of all these things. And in many cases, the managing partner is the managing partner because they are the one that traditionally has been one of the most productive partners. And you make the managing partner, and they're no longer that productive. But uh, rather than having a management through a, a single managing partner, the cabinet system will assign important responsibilities like marketing and business development, financial measurements, things like that, to individual partners. And that can be some way to organize the work. Uh, documentation is very important so that things get done, things do not fall beneath the cracks, but at the same time, there's not an unnecessary duplication of effort. So one of the things that we would recommend that a law firm consider when looking at the partnership agreement or the shareholders agreement or the bylaws is to what extent does this structure facilitate efficient and well-informed decision-making? Uh, so much time is spent making decisions that 
perhaps could be made in a more efficient and more productive manner if you had the underlying structure there. So there is a link, definitely. That's very interesting. And I, you sort of anticipated one of the questions I had, which is, is profitability and governance linked together? And you, I think you, you've answered that. But you also alluded to what you called professional managers. And that's a theme that I'd like to explore a little bit more. As you know, lawyers are somehow somewhat reluctant to, to surrender some control, direction, uh, management responsibilities of their firms because they consider themselves owners of the firm. And as such, they, they feel that they should be involved in the day-to-day management of the firm. You're right. We have seen in North America and in some other countries the nomination or the hiring of a professional manager. So someone who does not come from the law firm uh, or from a from a legal background. Is that a trend that's going to continue or is it stopping? And one of the reasons why perhaps it hasn't caught on as much is this reaction that uh, you know, well, a professional manager is not a lawyer. They don't understand our business. It's going to take them too long to understand how we work. And in the meantime, we're going to lose time and effort and everything else. How do you, how do you address that kind of reaction when you're, you're discussing with a, with a potential client or a client? I think there is a trend toward the professional manager. Uh, it's a little more difficult in a smaller firm, but the things to look out for, the, the, the real issues involved. The first one is, do we actually need this? I mean, we're lawyers, we're smart, we're partners, it's our business. Uh, We know it better than anybody else. So why do it? So making the business case for professional management is the first step. It is true that many business managers do not understand our business as lawyers, but they do understand business. And they understand business probably better than we do. So identifying the scope of work, identifying the responsibilities and functions that are going to be performed is the first step. And having a good business case for each one of us, showing that this is going to save us time. This is going to enable us to do things that we have not been able to do. The best return on an hour of a partner's time is not managing the business. It's not reading the reports, although you have to read the reports. It's not even sometimes doing billable work. It's being out there in the community, developing new work, and particularly new work from existing clients. So you have to make the business case, first of all. The second thing, I think, is to be very clear about what it is that the manager is going to do. Uh, and there are people now that are very experienced in law firm management who are working in-house, even though they might not be lawyers. Some are, many are not. But making it clear, what are the responsibilities of the manager? Telling some poor outsider, you know, please come into our firm and fix everything uh, <laughs> usually isn't going to work that well. So be very clear. Uh, also, and this is where, this is where things can go bad. Understanding the relationship and authority of the partners vis-a-vis the manager. What are the responsibilities that we are entrusting? What are the things where we reserve the final decision? And I've seen some law firms where they have brought in a manager 
that person has been extremely successful for about two years. And then some of these conflicts begin to emerge. Uh, And there's group dynamics there. When the manager comes in, uh, sometimes it's almost like the man on horseback in the the 19th century. The person is going to come in and solve all our problems. But once they begin to see, the partners begin to see what's happening, uh, unless there's a clear understanding and a way to resolve these issues, sometimes that's where uh, the system begins to break down. But again, business case, clear definition of rules and re- roles and responsibilities, and third, being ready to discuss when disagreements arise as to the scope of authority of the manager. Very interesting. I've seen some models of firms where the notion of a partner has been broadened to allow people who are non-lawyers or non-professionals in the business of the firm to accede to partnership, either through um, a non-equity partnership or even, and I, you know, maybe in some cases it would happen to to be an equity partner, and and that is something that introducing non-fee earners as managers can lead to a situation or an expectation that these people would eventually uh, become a partner. Is that is is that a trend also that you're seeing perhaps in the in the way that the firms are structured to allow this professional manager to have a greater interest in the in the successful performance of of the firm? That tends to be somewhat firm specific and even jurisdiction specific. But what we are seeing in some firms is means by which a manager, particularly if manager has a title like chief operating officer or chief financial officer, where they can become a partner equivalent. And the equivalency comes, of course, in compensation. Uh, They may also have a profit-sharing scheme by which part of their compensation is based on the overall profitability of the firm. They may also be given a voice and vote on certain partnership decisions. The important thing with all of these is very clear and careful documentation so that we keep an understanding of to what extent this partner equivalent does or does not have the full authority and responsibilities and power of an equity partner or owner. But yes, we are seeing it. Where we see it not working generally is where there hasn't been this clear understanding in this documentation of just what this role involves. Yeah, and I think that's important because whether even within a firm, when you're delegating or you're expecting a partner, a professional, to to assume some tasks, often it's very it's very nebulous what the what the responsibilities are of that person, and that can lead to conflict uh, eventually because you know that person might be under the impression that they're doing everything that they can for the firm, and it's not being perceived as such by some of the other partners. Uh, and that that also can lead to to some tension, clearly. One of the last questions, and we're almost out of time, unfortunately, and leaving aside this issue of, of governance that you just spoke about uh, by introducing um, 
a professional manager. Has it happened in your experience that, you know, a firm will embark on this project and get really excited about a a profit-focused initiative, but then drop the project? What are those main obstacles to maintaining the momentum on the project? And how would you suggest overcoming those, those obstacles? I think what happens is not so much that the project is dropped, but it sort of slides out of the hand <laughs> and becomes forgotten. And there are, some, there are some key conditions for success, I think, of this. Number one is involvement. Uh, this is something that it should, in, should involve everybody in the practice, not just the partners. Because everybody should be keeping time. Everybody should be aware of the factors that drive the profitability of the practice. And as part of that, they should be aware also of how what they do, what their behaviors and actions are that support or possibly might interfere with profitability. So involvement, involvement in talking about the factors that affect profitability. When I say involvement, I'm including associates, uh, non-lawyer fee earners, sometimes even support staff. Uh, And that's because one of the principles that really drives our practice at Walker-Clark is the principle that the people who do the work day to day know it best. They may not have the big picture, but they know the details best. Uh, So involvement of people, involvement in the business case for what we are doing. Uh, The second thing I think is communication, communication of the results, communication of the measurements, paying attention to them over time. And this is where the leaders of the practice group can play an important role in making sure that everybody in the group understands to the extent that is appropriate for their particular role and function, that they understand what we're doing and what are the results that we're getting. Because what we want to see here is sustainable profitability, not a quick fix. We want to see continuous improvement. And that's a cycle that involves people all the time. And so involvement and communication of the results, I think those are the two things that are important. Without those, the great profitability plan will become a dusty volume on a bookshelf. Right. Norman Clark, thank you very, very much for your time today. This has been a fascinating conversation. I remind our listeners that you will be in London at the Open Forum in October 2023. That's going to be an opportunity to come back on the results of the survey that FICBI has uh, rolled out and is seeking answers to, and to, of course, engage with uh, Norman in person if you you, uh, decide to attend London. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, Norman. And thank uh, you very much. Stay tuned for our next uh, episode. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. If you have any questions about the topics discussed in this podcast, you can sign up for free and message us, ficp.org. You can also find out more of what's to come on the FICP Focus 45 podcast series, either on the events page of our website, LinkedIn, or via our newsletter. See you next time.